this morning, uh, will you open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you've got uh, Psalms and the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of uh, Solomon or Song of Songs there. So we're, we're not in First Thessalonians this morning. Technically, I'm still on vacation. So this is a vacation sermon that I'm preaching here. I didn't want to stress the board out and give them two Sundays in a row. So... <laughs> Uh, did somebody say thank you? Oh, thank you guys, though, for taking that last Sunday. It's great. What do they say about public speaking? It's like um, it's like shark attacks and public speaking. They're like right next to each other is the fears of people or something crazy like that. Right? So, <laughs> uh, let's see. So anyway, uh, so this morning is kind of a casual reading and reflection from uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a book that I, I ponder... I've never actually preached or talked through this this particular book. Uh, one day, I think it'd be great on a, on a Sunday to go verse by verse and comb through Ecclesiastes with a fine tooth comb. It, I just ponder it, and I just I just wonder, and sometimes I don't understand exactly uh, everything that's going on there. But you know how it is in life when Scripture you read it, and maybe you get a little piece, but then later in life you read it again, and you go, "Oh, wow!" Right? And later you read it in life, you go, "Oh, look at that." That means so much to my soul, and maybe it didn't mean as much earlier. And So the, the scripture is alive, and it speaks to us in our life and our situations, and as we mature and grow in different seasons. And so this is a great book to ponder. We're not going to, we're just going to kind of skim through the first three chapters, and then go to the end where it all um, concludes, and just, uh, I don't know, just kind of hang out here with, with Solomon. Uh, so we have King David, the greatest king of Israel. And his son Solomon, uh, come join us on Wednesdays. Uh, uh, we're finishing up First Chronicles, heading into Second Chronicles, and so David is about to die. I think next uh, Wednesday we'll see David's death, and then um, the kingdom will be passed on to his son Solomon. And so Solomon, like his father, reigned for forty years. And uh, Solomon is a bit of a Christ figure, for he built the temple of God. And Jesus is the one who truly builds the temple of God, right? We, the people of God, who come to faith in Jesus, we together are God's temple. But he built the physical temple there in Jerusalem. God gave Solomon extraordinary wisdom. He gave a, a blank check to Solomon. It's pretty fascinating when you read about it. He says, Solomon, whatever you want, I'm going to give you. And Solomon said, I need help to, to, to guide your people, Lord. I need wisdom to guide your people. Right? And God's like... Best answer you could ever have, basically, right? And so he gave him the wisdom. He says that he was more wise than anybody that ever came and more wise than anybody that ever would be. So he's the, the wise guy for all, for everybody, right? Better than anybody that's ever lived or ever will live. Now there's that irony, an irony to it. Because though he was so wise, he threw away his wisdom at one point in his life and went into deep sin and brought idolatry into the nation of Israel. Very, very sad. Great wealth and power Solomon had. He had the wealthiest kingdom in Israel uh, compared to any of the other kings. I mean, it was said that like, um, silver was of little value in Solomon's day. It was like rocks. Gold was everywhere. Right? <laughs> so a huge amount of wealth and power. But again, as I mentioned, um, he didn't use all of his wisdom. And uh, one of the reasons that, or one of the ways in which he fell into sin was... Well, he had too many wives. Some of you are familiar with this uh, situation as you've read it. Not familiar with it, but you've had too many wives. <laughs> See, this is why I normally take notes. So, so if it's not a vacation sermon, I spend hours and hours, seriously, 
It's painstaking, lots of prayer. So this is a little more off the cuff, so you know, but we can laugh at certain things like that. He had a thousand wives. You believe that? Seven hundred wives and three hundred concubines, and depending on how you read and understand a concubine, it could have been slaves or they could have been a, a, like a second-class wife. <laughs> but can you? I, no, you can't imagine. In fact, we shouldn't imagine, right? Don't imagine. <laughs> But it was a problem, especially because a lot of the wives that he married were foreign women. They weren't uh, Israelites, and they worshipped false gods. And that was his downfall because they wanted to worship all these false gods like Molech and all these nasty, hideous Canaanite gods. And so eventually, apparently, they wore Solomon down. And he built them temples to worship their false gods. And he brought idolatry, worshipping idols, into the land of Israel. Horribly wicked. Horribly wicked. Solomon started off really well. Then he went right down the toilet with that. But then the, he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And I think the book of Ecclesiastes is King Solomon coming back to God and repenting and getting things right before he died. So I think that's what the, the book of Ecclesiastes is, is really all about. An old Solomon looking over his life and all that he did and, and coming to conclusions here. Solomon wrote the, most of the Proverbs, not all of them, Ecclesiastes and the Song of Songs, which is actually quite uh, poetry about uh, uh, marriage. Uh, pretty fascinating. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon is looking back upon his life. Remember, he was the king, the most wealthy king that Israel ever had. He looked upon his wealth, his pleasure, his power, all that he did and all that he built and this is what he concludes. It's all meaningless. It's all a chasing after the wind. Those are phrases in this book that you will see over and over again. He says it's all meaningless. Some uh, translations say vanity, vanity. And some say meaningless. And he says it's a chasing after the wind. Isn't that kind of a graphic picture? Go out there and chase after the wind. See if you can catch it. Right. You try, you try, but you can't ever catch it, right? It always slips away. And so I think what... We have here is an account of a man who sampled all the pleasures and all the worldly things that he possibly could. And he tried to enjoy them all. And for a time he probably did. But in the end he says it was meaningless and worthless. And the only thing actually that is good in his life is to seek God. And it's fascinating because he tried everything that we couldn't even try because he's the king. He gets to sample it all. And he found out it was all worthless. And the only thing that matters is seeking after God. I always told my kids, four of them growing up in the house, they try to learn after, from other people's mistakes. Because if you learn from other people's mistakes, you know what? Then you don't have to make them yourself. Seems like a, like a win-win, right? <laughs> so I said, pay attention. Look at what the other kids are doing. Look at what other people are doing. And go, ooh, that's dumb. I don't want to do that. So then you don't have to go down that road. And so let's look at Solomon and go, wow, look what he did. And let's not go down that road. Right? Let's learn from Solomon's mistakes. So we don't have to make them. A couple things to consider as you read the book of Ecclesiastes. These are reflections of a man who lived under the old covenant. He did not know the Savior Jesus like we know him. He knew of a Messiah. Because right? God promised David one would sit on his throne forever. A forever king that would come. So he knew that the Messiah, the Savior, was coming. But he didn't get to know him personally like we do. And I believe that Jesus is the key and the answer to all of Solomon's Questions that we find in the book of Ecclesiastes. Because you ever read it? Have you read it? You're like depressed at the end, frankly. You're like, oh, everything is horrible. 
<laughs> it's kind of a tough book to read. But if you put Jesus into the equation and you realize this is what Solomon was missing, then you go, oh, I understand so much more now. So he, we're going to interject Christ into that because he didn't quite understand Jesus like we do. And even his understanding of an afterlife, frankly, seems a little hazy. I think he understood there was a judgment, of course, he's going to talk about that, and rewards and punishments, but what did he really understand about eternal life? Not, not, not what we understand, because the fullness of the revelation of God had not been given yet. It came underneath the prophets like Isaiah, and these guys, they spoke of more of eternity and the millennial kingdom and things like that, but that was after Solomon. And so we find in the Bible a progressive... Um, Evolution of understanding as God began to reveal to the people more and more about what was going to happen in the Savior to come and God's plans for all of humanity. And so we are so blessed that we get to live in this day and age and understand um, really all of God's plans in getting to know Jesus, where Solomon didn't quite know all that we know. So let's keep that in, in mind as you um, read and try to interpret uh, the book of uh, Ecclesiastes. Also understand that some of these things we read in the Old Testament, um, they were promises given to Israel, but they were not necessarily promises given to the church. And so some overlap and some don't. So Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Let's go to verse 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The words of the teacher. Okay, that's Solomon. He's David's son. He's the king. And this is how he opens his book. Verse 2. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Welcome to the book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> Prepare to be depressed. <laughs> Again, we have to interpret it correctly. But this is how he opens it. Hmm. And there's a couple of ways in which I understand where he's coming from. Because hmm, without Jesus... Ultimately, life is meaningless. Without a creator and a God who loves us, then what is it all worth? Like, I'm amazed that people even live a life at all. I'm surprised that more people just don't blow their brains out, frankly. Because what is life? Because life is so hard and difficult sometimes, and, and so much brokenness and pain and death and all these things. And without understanding God who made us and He has a plan for us, and you don't see things through God's perspective, then you would say it's all meaningless, it's utterly meaningless, right? But then you put Jesus into the mix and you understand that actually there is meaning and there is joy and there is hope in this crazy broken life. But He didn't know Jesus, right? Not, not yet, He understood He was coming. But also, I think this whole meaningless thing is that it's from the perspective of a man who is chasing the world. And you can chase the world, and even if you catch it, you never catch it. Right? It's like wind through the fingers, and then it's still meaningless. How many wealthy, powerful people have all this money and all this wealth, and they arrive at the top, and they find there's nothing there, and they hang themselves. We've seen it many times in our world. Because they tried to catch the world, and then they thought they caught it, and they found out it was all meaningless, and there's nothing really there. Because see, when you without God in the equation, what is there? Because we're going to find out that Solomon, he sampled every pleasure that you could ever sample. And in the end, he found it didn't satisfy. Verse 3. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and it hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows and the south, 
uh, to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. I think he's describing our world. Some of you are old hippies. Remember that song? Turn, 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 the beat, the birds, right? Is it the birds? They'll turn, 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 the time, the season under. They were reading Ecclesiastes. That's where they got all this. This is the world turning right here. It turns and turns and turns. He understands the water cycle and all the things. And the generations, what do they do? They come and they go, and the world keeps turning. And he says, what's the point in it all? What do people gain from all their labor? The world keeps turning. People live, people die. What's the point of it all? I think that's the question that he's asking here. And Solomon is going to explore all of these things in his wisdom and in the life that he had and come to some conclusions. Verse 8. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear full of hearing. Sometimes you just have to ponder these things for a whole lifetime. The eye never has enough seeing, nor the ear enough of hearing. But verse 8 says, all things are wearisome, more than one can say. Don't you feel that way sometimes in this world? That everything's wearisome? Now maybe when I was younger, I'm not sure I could connect with that. But the older I get, the more I realize the world's pretty wearisome. And you notice everything's going downhill and breaking and falling apart. Like our bodies. Right? I went to start the swamp cooler the other day. It ran, and then it stopped running. And I looked at my wife, and I'm like, this is how it is. This is how the world is. I went to use the weed walker the other day. I just put a new carburetor on it, straight from China. <laughs> and it was running. And then I picked it up later, and the little tube just busted off. The gas is pouring everywhere. And I thought, this is it. This is our world, babe. Everything's breaking. Everything's falling apart. It's wearisome and agitating to me. And then people die, and people get sick, and people do dumb things, and they're, they're hurtful things, and there's brokenness, and there's pain, and there's wearisomeness. More than one can say. And I think the longer you live, the more you feel the wearisomeness of this world. I know there's many levels to depression, and it's complex, I and mean, there's a physical thing there. I think there's a spiritual thing, there's a mental thing, there's all these stuff when it comes to depression, but I wonder if sometimes it's just the, the weight of the wearisome of the world upon us, and we just feel blah from it, right? Well, what's going on here? Why is it so wearisome? Well, it's because we live in a fallen, broken world. Remember Adam and Eve? When they were in the garden, it wasn't wearisome. When they lived in holiness and perfection in the presence of God before sin came into the world, there was no wearisomeness. It was a joyful work. He worked in the garden, but it wasn't wearisome. But then when he sinned, and, and he then invited death into the world, and sin came into our world, we live in what's called a fallen world now, and God cursed the world. And he says, in this world you're going to um, have a lot of trouble and a lot of pain, and thorns and thistles are going to grow up and be a real problem when you're harvesting your, you know, your wheat and you're you know, making your gardens and all of that. Because in the Garden of Eden, everything is perfect. And then he told Adam, from now on, you're going to make your living by the sweat of your brow. It's June. It's starting to sweat the brow, isn't it? Think about it. Thank you for that. Thanks. Thanks, dude. The sweat of our brows. Life is hard. Work is hard. It's toilsome. 
And things are breaking and falling apart because we have a broken world. Hmm. This is a curse upon mankind. It's a general punishment upon all mankind, the curse that God gave us because we sinned. But you know what? It has a purpose. It's a redemptive curse and punishment because if everything was perfect, would you seek God? You wouldn't. What do I need God for? It's all good. But when everything's kind of breaking and falling down and it's just this worrisome, sweaty, horrible, tough time in this world, then you say, oh God, I need you. And I'm lost and I'm hurting and I don't know where to turn, right? And we look to God. See, that's the whole point. That's the whole purpose of it all. And I know we get wrapped up in the wearisomeness, sure. But let it drive us to Jesus. And there we find the hope. And there we find the peace. And there we find the joy. Because here's the deal. Jesus one day will fix all that Adam broke. Jesus is called the second Adam in Scripture. The first Adam, our first father, broke it all with his sin. The second Adam, he comes to fix it all. He already started at the cross by dealing with our sin. And one day he will fix all that is broken. And in the end of Revelation, we see that God will wipe every tear from our eyes. And there will be no more pain or mourning or death or suffering. He will do everything new with a new heaven and a new earth. And so Jesus will make all things perfect that Adam broke. So in our wearisome days, let us run to Jesus. And there you find hope, and there you find meaning, and there you find joy. Verse 9. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there is something new. (laughs) It was here already. Long ago, it was here before our time. And there's nothing new under the sun. It kind of makes me chuckle. Everybody thinks they're coming up with something new. And they're not. Now, they're repackaging generally the same old thing. Like, what, Harrison Ford made another uh, movie? Um, what was it? The, the Indiana Jones? Like, I was like, really? He's going to do that? I don't know if it was any good. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> we've lost interest a long time ago. <laughs> there's nothing new, apparently. I mean, you say, well, there's some new things happening. Think of technology. That wasn't in Solomon's day. Solomon didn't have an iPhone. No, he didn't. But you know what? All of that is just a repackaged something from the past. Because what is that? What's our little phone, right? You think of email and texting and calling and even YouTube, all that stuff. Is it not simply a form of communication or entertainment? Has that not always been around? Of course it has, right? So the world isn't really coming up with anything new. It's just a repackaging of what's always been. Pretty fascinating. And man thinks they're so special. Look what I did. (laughs) Verse 11. No one remembers the former generations. And even those who come, uh, and even those yet to come, will not be remembered by those who follow them. Let me read that again. No one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Again, welcome to the depressing book of Ecclesiastes. Okay? So what's he saying here? Something very profound. And yet sad, I know. What he's saying here, in a few generations, after you die, no one will know who you are, and no one will remember you. Hmm. Happy day. Think about that. How many of you remember your great-great-grandfather? Hmm. I remember a great-grandfather a little bit. Great-great? I got a picture and a couple stories. How about your great-great-great-grandfather? I bet you don't have a clue. And if you do, it's a picture and a name, maybe, and that's all you know. 
So how many generations go by before you completely have lost track of who these people are? My aunt gave me this big old stack of old, cool black and white pictures. I don't know why she did, but she just gave them to me one day. And she says, in that picture, see that little baby in those people's arms? They're a bunch of Okies, I think they were. That's what they call them from Oklahoma, and they come out to California. So most of us are Okies and Texans that have come out here, I think. And, and uh, so that's how my family is. And she said, that little baby in that person's arms, we think might be my great-grandmother or something like that. But we don't really know. I'm like, oh, that's such a great picture of someone we may or may not even know who they are in there. <laughs> and I bet you've got a picture like that in your attic somewhere. Or Grandma does, or somebody does. But after a while, you're going to look at it and be like, who are these people? I always like paper pictures. We found some. We were moving a desk yesterday. And uh, we're like, oh, look at pictures when the kids were little. It's fun. And I always think, we need to write their names on there in the years because eventually someone's going to go, who are these kids? Beautiful children. Don't know who they are. (laughs) Of course, a lot of our pictures are digital. Mm, I don't even know what's going to happen to that, right? And it's a little depressing, really, to realize in a couple generations no one knows who you are. But I think there's a point to this. I encourage you to go to a cemetery and walk around. Probably every few months, one ought to go to a graveyard. It's good for the soul if you'll take it to heart. When Jennifer and I, we ran over to the coast for just a couple days, and we were in a little town of Ferndale, I think it is. Yeah, some of you over the ocean, pretty little, little town. And we went to the cemetery. I know, what did you do in Ferndale? We went to the cemetery. And we walked up. It was beautiful, actually. One of the most beautiful cemeteries I'd ever been to. It went straight up this hill. Super steep. And you could overlook the town from there. It was really, actually, quite uh, lovely. Beautiful flowers. Boy, the flowers on the coast this year were spectacular. New stuff grows over there. They can't grow over here, apparently. But you look at these old gravestones from the 1800s, 1886, so-and-so, and you read it. And you go, wow, that person was three years old when they died. Look at that girl. She lived till she was 16. That guy was really old. He was 95. And you think, who remembers these people? Because there's no flowers on their graves, right? Nobody remembers them. Nobody goes to that graveyard and remembers that person. They're completely <laughs> forgotten. Wow. And then when you do that, remember, that's where you're going to go one day. Well, your fleshly body will. When you love Jesus, your spirit will go... Straight to the Lord, right? Mm-hmm. But the body will go to the grave. And they'll put up a little something. And people will visit for a while. But then a few generations will go by and they won't. And be some stranger will walk around and go, Hey, I wonder how that old guy was. Yeah. Hmm. So what's the point in all that? Well, I, I think it's deeply humbling, frankly. Some people think they're really, really high and mighty. Even in the graveyard, they think they're high and mighty because they have the, uh, what do you call those big buildings out there? Mausoleums, those make me laugh. I'm like, wow, I really thought he was something. <laughs> Nobody even knows who he is anymore. But he built a little, little special house there for his bones. But I think it's deeply humbling because we're just mortals. We're just made from dust. And to dust we will return. And I think it also tells us that we want to do things in life that matter. And what is it that's going to matter? What's going to be recorded for all eternity? The things that we do for Jesus. Right? What are the great commandments? Love God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and all your strength. And the second greatest commandment is love your brother, right? your neighbor, the people around you like you love yourself. 
And so those are the things that last. Realize that God is writing all this down. Though the generations will forget who you are, God remembers. And all we've done for him will be recorded, and there will be rewards for those who honor God in this life. And so maybe this week, head on down the street. Is it Oak, Oak Hill that's down the road? It's a, it's a pretty lovely little cemetery, actually, in Red Bluff. It's very nice. And look at those old stones and contemplate your own mortality. And pray and ask God to help you do things that will last forever. And we're only here for a few moments. So let's make those moments matter. Let's hug each other a little tighter. Love each other a little more deeply. Try to do what is good and right in the sight of God. Verse 12. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid upon mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. Solomon here, he's on a quest to explore the world and try to understand everything. He wants to use the wisdom that God gave him to examine everything and see what's the point in it all. And here he says, God's laid on man a heavy burden. He has. Life is hard and then you die. That's a heavy burden. But, when you put Jesus in there, you say, oh, but I got forgiven of all my sins. (laughs) And I get to go to heaven. And I get to know and love God, right? And it changes everything. So it's a heavy burden, yes, but really it's because of our sin. Verse 16, I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ever ruled over Israel or Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much much wisdom, much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. So we see in in Ecclesiastes, he, it's, it's like... He's experimenting. He is so wise and so understanding. He just says, I'm going to look at every aspect of life and see what it's all about. And so he looked at life through wisdom and knowledge, but he also looked at life through madness and folly. Hmm. To see, is there anything in that worthwhile, worth checking out? Fascinating. And yet, dangerous. (laughs) Don't do that. But he says... No matter what he did, it all was like a chasing after the wind. Verse 18, for for with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. I pondered that one a few times in my life. He says, the more wisdom and knowledge you have, the more grief and sorrow you have. Huh. What's the old saying? Ignorance is bliss. It kind of is sometimes, right? Like here's the more knowledge and understanding you have of, of, of uh, the downward spiral of America, <laughs> the more wisdom and understanding you have of the political system and the climate in our entire world, 
Does that make you um, happy or more sorrowful and more filled with grief? Right? Sometimes more knowledge, and I'm not saying you should just be an ostrich and stick your head in the sand, right? That's probably not good either. But sometimes more knowledge and understanding actually brings more grief and sadness and sorrow. The more you understand how evil Satan is, and the more you see and understand how he harms people and destroys lives, and, and all the garbage that, that happens and as a pastor sometimes with, with counseling, and I hear that the damage has been done to families and people, and the more knowledge I have sometimes it brings me more grief. I need to hear these things. We need to, because Jesus is the answer. And God can heal, and he can mend, and he can repair. But I just find personally sometimes the more I understand the more I'm grieved. But I also think there's a flip side to it, because also the more we understand, and the more we know, the more we can praise God. Mm. Because we understand there are plans and purposes. And God is bigger than the enemy. Right? So I think it goes both ways. Chapter 2. It's entitled, Pleasures are Meaningless. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Uh, he's going to experience all the pleasure that a king could experience. And then when he's done, he's like, oh, it wasn't worth anything. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guided me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. It's really fascinating that he actually, in his wisdom, went into folly. He experimented with being a fool. Hmm. With the wine and a thousand wives, right? That was foolish. Which, by the way, have you ever seen in the Bible when a king or a, a patriarch had multiple wives? Do you notice it never works out well? It's always a problem! It's like seriously a major problem. The kids are all messed up. There's all this feuding in the family. God's plan is one man and one woman. Clearly, right? You stray from that and you can get into problems. Well, this man, in his wisdom, chose to experiment in folly to see what it was like. And, of course, he found out it was meaningless. Verse 4. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. He reigned for 40 years, so he must have built all kinds of stuff there in Jerusalem. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well. There's the thousand wives. And the delights, uh, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all of this, my wisdom stayed with me. Which is fascinating. Even when he was experimenting with all these things, there was still a wisdom that he was, a, he was like, it's like an experiment. And he's trying to understand, do these things have meaning or not? Can you imagine the parties that Solomon threw? The amount of what the food looked like on the tables. This king with all this wealth and all these people and all these wives and all this craziness. 
people like, bring in the singers, right? Bring in the people and give me a massage and whatever he did. And he did it all. He tried it all. Verse 10, he says, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor. This was the reward for my toil. So he kind of enjoyed it for a little while. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless and chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. So in all his wealth and all his pleasure, denying himself nothing, he said in the end, it was all worthless. It was meaningless. What if we find that? I love to get something on from Amazon. I don't know, I'm like a little kid. Like, woo, see, it doesn't matter what it is, it's, it's going to come. And you get in some new little whatever, and then after a while, like, I don't care. It's like a drug. Things, new, new thing, you get that new car, yeah, 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 and then after a while, it's just an old beat-up car. Right? <laughs> the house is falling apart, whatever. Right? Things, things don't last, things don't satisfy. And he, he experimented and he tried all that and found out this isn't it. This is not it. And ultimately, he's going to come to the conclusion at the end here that God is the center of it all. Without God, everything is meaningless. Because how many times have we had that new shiny thing and it seemed so great, and then after a while, we didn't care. Verse 12. Then I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. Right? He's experimenting. What more can the king's successor do that was already that has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads, while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both, right? The fool or the wise man is still going to die, but he says it's way better to be wise. Now Solomon also tells us in the Proverbs that the beginning of wisdom is what? The fear of the Lord. And so to be wise is to fear God. That means you respect Him. And you surrender your life to Him. And that is far better than the fool who walks in the darkness and rejects God Almighty who made him. Verse 15, Then I said to myself, The fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, This too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. Verse 17, so I hated life. So I hated life. See, this is what's happened. When you just focus on the pleasures of this world, they will let you down and you will hate your life. So I hated life. Because the work that is under the, done under the sun was grievous to me. My life is grieving him. All of it is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun. Because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. He worked so hard. He built all these things. And he's like, I hate it all. I hate my life. I hate these things. Because they don't satisfy. And I can't even take them with me when I die. i got to give them to somebody else. And of course, you remember his son. His son was named Rehoboam. And he was a horrible guy. And the kingdom split right after him. So he had to give all his stuff to this horrible son. 
Verse 19, and who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Well, his son is foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair. He's depressed. My heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all that they owe to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. Isn't that interesting? You can work and labor and amass all kinds of stuff, and in the end, you don't get to take it with you. I remember my grandfather when he died in his 90s. He's a little shriveled up old geezer is what he was. We loved old gramps. But when he died, he just there was nothing left to him. <laughs> and he didn't hold anything in his hands. And he made a nice life for himself, actually. Yeah. And there was nothing left. Like, what does Job say? Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. I take nothing into this world, and I take nothing when I leave. But yet he's bummed out about it. He's like, this is horrible. I work so hard and don't get to take it with me. Mm. And so, what can we learn from this? We have to then work hard in this life for that which will be eternal. Mm. Because if you work hard to please God, you get to take those rewards with you forever and ever and ever, right? When you honor God in this life, you're going to get stuff back. Jesus said, store for yourselves treasure in heaven, remember? Verse 22, what do people get for all their toil and anxious striving, which they labor under the sun all their days? Their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. Mm. Life is hard. And that's why we need Jesus. And Solomon, he didn't have the Savior. So he was kind of stuck. and He was kind of suffering here. He doesn't understand it all very well. Verse 24 He's now going to interject God. Because all of this has been fairly godless, hasn't it? That's why it's so meaningless. In verse 24, he says, A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So here he interjects God into the equation, and he says, Without God, who can eat and find enjoyment? When you put Jesus into your life, you will find that even the toil is good. Everything becomes good when God is in the equation. To eat and drink and find satisfaction in your toil. When you eat, you can worship God. When you eat that food and you say, oh, wow, thank you, Lord. You made this. You made my taste buds. This is really cool. I get to have this nice food. And you turn it back to worship, right? Now there's joy in eating. Satisfaction in your toil. Guys, gals, we have to toil in this life. Sometimes, I, I, have, I have quite a few jobs that I didn't necessarily like in my life. In moments in my jobs, I didn't, even as a pastor, there's parts of it I don't really like. We have to toil and we have to labor. 
And here we can find satisfaction, it says, in the toil. If we put God in it. And the New Testament tells us a couple things. This is from Colossians chapter 3. Verse 23 says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Okay, whatever you do, you work at it as if you're working for Jesus, not your boss. Right? So it's not really your boss. You go to serve every day. You go to serve Jesus every day. And so when you put that into the mix, you can understand, you know what? So whether, whether you're, you're sweeping the floor or whether you're doing brain surgery or anything in between, you do it for Jesus. Right? And now it has meaning. And now it has value. And now you can turn it into worship and you can enjoy it. You can find meaning and joy in your toil. See, put Jesus into your life and every aspect and everything begins to make sense. And there'll be purpose in it all. Chapter 3, this is where those, uh, the birds, the hippie guys, right, they were singing. There's a time for everything. I think they, uh, pretty much line for line, they copied this, I believe. There's a time for everything, a season for every activity under the sun. A time to be born and a time to die. This is a special passage, we can't quite do it justice this morning, but think about that. There's a time to be born, when you hold those little newborn babies, they're so crazy, amazing, right, they're little miracles. But then there is a time to die. And so we want to be prepared as we trust God, because death is the lot of every human being. We're going to have to die. There is a time to be born, there is a time to die. But when you die with Jesus, it's going to be okay. If you die without Jesus, it will not be okay. He goes on, there's a time to plant and a time to uproot. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. And that's so true. There's times, right, to laugh, to enjoy. There's times to weep and wail and mourn. There's a time to mourn, there's a time to dance, there's a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak. Well, Lord, help us to get that one right. Sometimes we speak when we should be silent, and sometimes we're silent when we should speak. Help us, Jesus, to know when. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What do workers gain from their toil? I've seen the burden that God has laid on the human, on the human race, and he has made everything beautiful in its time. Let's stop there for a second. Let me think of this. He says there's a time for a season for every activity under the heavens. Every season. I really enjoy spring and summer and fall and winter. I love the change of seasons. Now we're coming into summer, guys. Here we are. You gotta embrace the heat in Red Bluff. <laughs> Just go for it. Don't complain the whole time. But I find that in the natural world there are parallels to our life. As human beings. 
And so I contemplate this and toss it around in my head for, for years now. I've shared it with a few people. I think spring, summer, fall, and winter is a parallel of the human life. Let's picture, these are rough guesstimates. Let's picture each season for the human life 20 years. They say you, the average life in America is about 78, 77, something like that. So let's, let's pretend that's what it is. The first 20 years of your life is spring. Isn't spring full of new life and birth? The flowers are there and the grass and the trees are popping out and babies are being born and the little lambs are in the field and all that kind of beautiful stuff. And that's how it is. The first 20 years of your life, isn't everything fresh and new? And you're discovering as a little child and you're growing and exploring your world and it's so neat and fresh. And your skin is taut, right? <laughs> Generally speaking, people are healthy. First 20 years, right? In fact, when you're 20, you're pretty much at the prime. Oh, right, there you are. Spring, it's beautiful, it's exciting, and it's alerting, and it's, it's all, woo, neat. In the next 20 years, picture after you're 20 to 30 to 40, that's like the summer of your life. And summers, aren't the days really long in summer? Well, you can't barely get up before the sun these days, right? And the sun takes forever to go down. So you have these long days full of busyness. I remember my summer, four kids, two jobs, <laughs> didn't sleep a lot. Some of you are in the summer right now, and you're just like, whoo, going, 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 going. And it's a blast, but it's crazy. And you look back and go, I barely remember it, frankly. I have to look at pictures to remember the summer. What did we do? What was going on in our lives? Look at the kids. The summer just flew by for us. Wow. Some of you aren't there yet. Some of you have been through it. Some of you are in the summer of your life. It's amazing and wonderful, but boy, take pictures. It's going to go by fast. In the next 20 years, you slip, you slip into fall. I like fall. It's one of my favorite seasons. The days get a little shorter. Life is not quite so busy compared to summer, right? The sun's going down at like 5 o'clock and the leaves are turning, the coolness. I love it. It's just a quieter, but then the holidays, oh, they're coming and they're rich and they're just as sweet with family and there's a special sentimental time, isn't there, about fall and the holidays? And I think when you reach that age, 40 to 50 to 60, you start to, well, I'm preaching from Ecclesiastes, because I'm thinking about this stuff. You start contemplating, you become a little more sentimental, and you look at the little baby pictures and these things, and because the kids all left at the end of summer. Jennifer and I are heading into to fall, and it's beautiful, and it's great. But it's changing. And the life is shortening, the days are shorter, and, but it's pleasant, and it's nice, but you're looking back, and, but you're enjoying things. And so picture those 20 years of fall, but then the last 20 years of your life. It's winter. The last 20 years, boy, the days are really short, aren't they? And it's slower, isn't it? And the leaves have fallen from the trees. And it's kind of cold. You stay inside a lot more. The last 20 years, and you reflect back over the fall and the summer and the spring. And then the last leaf falls, and you leave this life. The winter can be a beautiful time. I love the fireplace and coffee in the morning in the winter. Mm, I love it. 
Each season you will find precious, sweet, beautiful things in your life, won't you? Look for them. Put Jesus in every season of your life and it can be so valuable. No matter if you're in the winter or wherever you're at. And you can soak it in and enjoy it. Because you know when those leaves are changing, isn't it lovely? In winter, it has a special feel. And there's Christmas. And so then we die at the end of winter. But then you know what? When you step over into the shores of eternity, there is a new season waiting for you. It is the eternal spring. Spring is going to start again, but it's an eternal spring. Because when you step into eternity, it will be new and fresh for all eternity, days without end. The flowers will never stop blooming. <laughs> the grass will never wither and die, and the leaves will not fall from the tree. It will be a continual exploration and joy and wonder at God for all eternity and all that he has for us. So an eternal spring is coming. And so also, when you get into winter, don't be depressed because you're that much closer to the eternal spring. In the presence of God forever and ever and ever. Verse 11, chapter 3 here. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Look at each of your seasons. You're going to find a lot of beauty in each of the seasons. Okay? There's a lot of beauty. But you have to look for it. He has also set eternity in the hearts of man. And no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Isn't it interesting? God has set eternity into our hearts. I think every human being understands that we are eternal, and there is a God, and there is an afterlife. I think everybody deep down understands that. They can deny it, and they can reject it if they want. But God has placed eternity in every human heart. We know there's more after this life, and yet no one can fathom all that God has done. He's so awesome. But that's the beauty of eternity, guys. I think that, what are we going to do forever and ever? You know what? We're going to learn about God. That he is so vast and so complex and so beautiful and so amazing that we will be in awe of him for all eternity. Learning. Learning. I think it will take an eternity to get to know him because he's so amazing. Verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. Put Jesus in your toil. This is the gift from God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing can be taken away. And God does it so that people will fear him. And God has a plan and a purpose behind it all. Let's skip down to verse uh, 17. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. So Solomon does understand that there is a judgment coming one day for those who are righteous and those who are wicked. Verse 20, all go down to the same place, all come from the dust, and to dust all return. How many funerals do they say? Dust to dust, ashes to ashes, right? Remember God made us from the dirt? Hmm. He took Adam and he took the dirt, the soil, and he made a living man and he breathed life into Adam. And when we die, our spirit goes to be with the Lord, but the body goes to the grave and does not it mold away and turn back into dirt. I encourage you to read um, these middle chapters. 
We're going to go to chapter 12 now for the conclusion of the matter. Chapter 12, the last chapter. Verse 1, remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. He's an old man looking back over his life, and he says, you've got to remember the creator when you're young, because one day you're going to be old, and then you're going to die. And, you know, it's not going to be pretty if you're not trusting in God. So young people, put all your hope in Jesus right now, today. Because you're going to blink and you're going to be old. Life is very short. Now notice this, he says, um, When the years approach, when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Sometimes as we grow older, there might be less and less pleasure in things maybe there used to be pleasure in. And what we have here is a description of growing old. Verse 2, Before the sun and the Light and the moon and the stars grow dark, and the clouds return after the rain. You might be thinking there of people losing their eyesight and things are not as bright as they used to be. Verse 3, when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop. What's the keeper of the house? I think those are your legs. Remember my grandpa when he was 90? The keepers of his house were not too sturdy. And he fell and he broke his hip. The keepers of the house begin to tremble as we get old. Old people have trouble walking along. And he's saying, you've got to remember God before the keepers of the house begin to tremble. And the strong men stoop. You ever see an old guy, this old, shriveled up little old dude? But when he was in his prime, he was strong. And he was tough. <laughs> and you see that time has just withered him down. And he's stooping over. When the grinders cease because they are few, what are the grinders? I think those are your teeth. And in the old days, you didn't get new teeth. So when you had a few grinders, grinding is ceasing because you have very few teeth left. And those looking through the windows grow dim. Your eyes are growing dim. Yeah, we can have some surgeries and we have glasses now, but you know what? It's still inevitable. Inevitable. People seem to slowly, their eyes grow dim with time. When the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades when people rise up at the sound of birds but all their songs grow faint old people get up really early with the rising of the birds I don't think I'm that old but I'm getting up way early these days I don't know what's going on and I totally love it I seriously love it so I guess it's a sign People, the sound of birds and yet the sound is growing faint because we're losing our hearing. Besides, when people are afraid of heights and of danger in the streets, huh, old guys shouldn't be on ladders. Hmm. And of danger in the streets. Huh. I have noticed sometimes the elderly become a little fearful. I think we want to be careful with our elderly too and want to provide them as much safety and security as possible. Because old, older people in the, in the winter of life, when things are unstable, it's very difficult for them, I think. Right? They really need that security. So let's pray and help and, and just watch over them as best we can. And he says, when the almond tree blossoms, I don't, I don't know what that means. 
and the grasshopper drags itself along. Now that's a vivid picture, the grasshopper dragging itself along, and desire no longer is stirred. Well, grasshoppers don't drag along. What do they do? They hop. But when you get to the place where you're not hopping and you're just dragging yourself along, wow, that's kind of the end, I think. And notice the desire no longer is stirred. Well, in youth, there are many desires, aren't there? They can be very strong. But as you get older, they seem to fade. Hmm. They seem to fade. And then what? Then people go to their eternal home. Wow, what a crazy description of growing old. And you go to your eternal home. But I tell you, when you're trusting in Jesus, then it's an eternal home that you're going to love forever and ever. Right? And you get eternal spring. And the mourners go about in the streets because people will be sad. Verse 6, remember him, remember God, before the silver cord is severed, you're the silver cord, it's going to snap one day, and the golden bowl is broken, and the pitcher is shattered at the spring, because one day we're going to break, one day we'll be broken, and it'll all be over, and the wheel is broken at the well, that's life, breaking, it's over. Verse 7, and the dust returns to the ground, it came, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. You go to be with Jesus in your spirit, your body to the grave. And then he says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, everything is meaningless. I think Ecclesiastes is a testimony about Jesus and a great need for the Savior. Because it isn't meaningless with Jesus, right? But that's what Solomon was missing, so I think Ecclesiastes is, is crying out for Jesus. Verse 9, here's the conclusion of the matter. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. A goad is a, a, a long shaft with a metal thing on the end. It was a poking device, and they poke the oxen to get him to go. So the words of the wise are like goads. They poke you to get you to go. Their collection of sayings is like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. That's God. God has spoken to Solomon and the wise people that have written these things down in the Bible. Boy, when you read the Bible, doesn't it poke you? <laughs> Get you going. Verse 12, be warned, my son, of adding any of anything in addition to them. Don't add to the word of God. Of making of many books, there is no end, and the much study wearies the body. I often quote that to myself on Friday when I put the whole sermon together after many hours of studying and I put it down exactly with what much prayer as I wanted to go and, and I'm very tired on Fridays. And I think of this verse, much study wearies the body. <laughs> verse 13, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Here is the, the, the end. This is what he's come to. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the full duty of mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Okay, so Solomon looked at all of life. He sampled every pleasure, everything, and he says it's all worthless. And what is not worthless is trusting God and obeying Him. Because judgment is coming. 
So here's the good news when we put Jesus into all of this. Notice he says, For God will bring every deed into judgment, including everything hidden, whether good or bad. That is true, but is also not true for the one who turns to Jesus. Because all of our wickedness is washed away by Christ. His shed blood, when Jesus died on the cross, he died for all of our sin. The sin of all mankind, right? Every thought, every, every word, every action. And so when we come to faith in Jesus, he's already paid for our sin. And now, by faith, he pronounces us forgiven. He says, no, all that sin is washed away. I look at you now, and you're righteous. And so that will not be brought about on the judgment day. Oh, praise God, right? And so this morning, as we come to pray and, and close, where are you with God today? Are you trusting in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior? Some people believe in God and even believe in Jesus to some degree, but are you trusting Him? See, there's a difference. It's, you can acknowledge that He's there, but you can also bow your knee and serve Him with all your heart. That's another thing, right? And so as I close... Remember, it's all meaningless without Jesus. So if you need Jesus in your life, and we all do, but you don't have him, would you ask him into your life today? And he will come into your life, and he will forgive your sin, and he will save you, and he will make life meaningful, not meaningless. And so as I pray, would you pray along with me? If there's somebody that needs to trust in Jesus today, I'm just it's a simple prayer, and I'm just going to say, Jesus... Forgive me and save me, right? And if you want to pray those, those words, you can pray them in your mind. You can pray them in your heart right now. Would you simply pray with me? Say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I confess I am a sinner. And I am sorry for my sin. Please, Jesus, Forgive all the sin in my life. Please wash me and cleanse me and make me righteous. Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. And I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And I believe that you rose from the dead. And I put all my faith and my trust in you, Lord. I will now serve you for the rest of my life. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying for my sins. Help me now to learn to love you. Help me now, Lord, to learn to serve you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So if you prayed with me this morning, realize that if you meant that, then God has forgiven all your sin. And he has saved you.
and he's given you a home in heaven. And now what do we do? Now we have to learn how to love God. And so church is a big part of that, so you need to, to come back. You need to learn how to, to pray and to love Jesus, and that's what church is all about, is learning that, because we're all in this together, and it's not easy, and we make a lot of mistakes. So as a family, we want to try to learn how to love God together.